In May 2019, Jennifer Dulos vanished from her home in an upscale neighborhood in Connecticut. Though her body has never been found, three people were arrested and charged in relation to her murder in January 2020. After the arrests, the state of Connecticut released hundreds of pages of documents showing a strong case against the defendants. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. All right, before we even get started, I am very excited that I am doing a live show with Generation Y and Gangland Wire. It is this Friday, so this is last call. It will be at the Screenland Armor in Kansas City, and I will leave a link to tickets in the show notes. If you looked at the timestamp on this episode, you'll notice it's long, so I'm going to get right into it. It's a little bit different of an episode. I don't usually do ongoing cases that are about to go to trial. It's also very high profile, so it's one that I expect you to hear on many podcasts, either in the past or coming up. And I try to only do these types of cases every once in a while because I usually don't feel like I have anything to add to it. But this one kind of got away from me. I had another episode planned for this week. And I was going to tack the Jennifer Dulos case onto the end of it because there are some parallels. But then this episode started getting longer than expected, so I considered maybe I'll make it a Patreon episode. Then, while I was in the middle of writing it this past week, the state of Connecticut released 467 pages of search warrant affidavits. And that's on top of the three full arrest warrants they've already released. So obviously this got longer and longer and longer, and the original episode I planned for this week will be next week, and we are going to talk about the Jennifer Dulos case. I am watching another similar Connecticut case. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's a very similar case to this. It's the case of Perry Mason, and I will be covering that after it goes to trial. They have not released nearly as much information to the public in that case as they have in this one. So this one will do before trial, and I'll update it later, but the Perry Mason case is coming as soon as there's a trial. So let's get into this. Jennifer and Fotis Dulos were married in 2004, just over a month after Fotis was granted a divorce from his first wife. Jennifer and Fotos were married for 13 years, and it looked from the outside pretty picture perfect. They made an attractive couple. Their family was active and athletic, and they were wealthy. Jennifer came from wealth, growing up off of Fifth Avenue in New York City. Fotis was a Greek immigrant who grew a business building luxury homes, partially with the help of gifts or loans from Jennifer's parents. It ended up being a total of about $2.5 million going into his business from Jennifer's parents. Together, Fotis and Jennifer had five children in under seven years. There were two sets of twins in there, and Jennifer threw herself into motherhood, She ferried the kids around to various music lessons and art classes and sports practices and dance classes, and Fotis threw himself into his work. 
He grew his home building company, The Four Group, to cater to the wealthiest clients in Connecticut. And this is an area of the country with some of the wealthiest people. So you really can grow a luxury home building company here. In 2012, the family moved into their own dream mansion that Fotis designed himself in a development he had built. It was a 15,000 square foot home in Farmington, Connecticut, which is outside of Hartford. Fotis moved the four group's offices to the house. Jennifer had always been a writer, and when her kids were very little, she took to blogging as a way to journal her family's adventures, but also to express herself. I've only been able to find entries from 2012 and early 2013. Her kids were all little, like newborn to age six. She wrote about the things moms with little kids write about, not feeling like she had enough time for herself or friendships. She felt isolated at times. She felt like her to-do list was very long. Fotis worked a lot, and he traveled about a third of every month. So she was home with all of these little kids. So I feel like Jennifer's life was filled with the usual ups and downs and struggles of that stay-at-home mom life. Until March 2017, when Jennifer found out her husband had been having an affair with Michelle Traconis, a businesswoman who was very worldly. She had lived around the world from Abu Dhabi to Argentina. And this affair had been going on for quite some time, upwards of a year. Jennifer stayed in the home and the marriage for a couple of months. And according to Fotis, the couple was working actively towards an amicable divorce. But that's not what Jennifer said happened. She told the family court that Fotis told her in May 2017 that if she didn't agree to his terms of divorce, he was going to take the kids and run with them. Then Jennifer said Fotis was mad at her one day over some scheduling issue with the kids. She said that he frightened her the way he was acting, so she left the room. He then followed her into a bedroom. He shut the door and blocked it, so she had to stand there while he was berating her. On June 19th, 2017, three months after Jennifer found out about the affair, she waited until Fotis left for work, packed up the kids, and went to her mother's apartment in New York City. When Fotis came home, he had no idea where they were, so he called 911 to report his wife and children missing. The next day, on June 20th, Jennifer filed for divorce. In her petition, she wrote that she was afraid of her husband and afraid of what he would do to her in retaliation for her applying for this divorce. She also said he had bought a gun recently. Fotis said in his reply to her divorce motion that he bought the gun for home protection and denied all of Jennifer's accusations that he bullied her or he threatened her or he said he was going to take the kids. He also accused Jennifer of telling the children that he doesn't care about them and that she could have the mafia break his legs with a baseball bat. 
He also claimed that she told the kids that she would make sure their divorce took two and a half years to finish. Jennifer's initial motion was for sole custody, and it was denied. The two were given shared custody pending the final divorce. Fotis did have his gun taken away, as it was an unregistered gun. Fotis remained in the family home in Farmington, and he moved his girlfriend, Michelle, and her daughter into the house after Jennifer and his kids left. Eventually, Jennifer did return to Connecticut with the kids and moved into a large rented house in New Canaan, Connecticut. This put her about halfway between her mother in New York City and Fotis in Farmington. So she was about an hour, hour and 15 minutes from each spot. Over that first summer that they were separated, the kids' nanny, Lauren Almeida, knew of two incidents that demonstrated Fotis's scarier side, the side that Jennifer was trying to get the court to see. Lauren said one time she heard Jennifer scream from outside in the driveway, and when she ran out to see what the problem was, Jennifer was shaken. She said that Fotis had just tried to hit her with his car. The second incident that summer, Lauren saw this one firsthand. Jennifer, the kids, and Lauren were all at the Farmington house with Fotis. Jennifer and Fotis got into an argument, and Fotis chased Jennifer through the house. She ran into a bedroom and slammed the door behind her. Fotis kept pounding on the door, not aware that Lauren and one of his kids were in the room that Jennifer had run into. Fotis only settled down when he realized they were there. Jennifer opted not to call the police. As she expressed to Lauren the nanny, she was worried about retaliation from Fotis. This was an ongoing concern of hers. She was afraid that he would take the kids and go to Greece. It is notoriously difficult to get countries to honor each other's custody rulings. And kids can be kept in other countries away from the other parent forever. Jennifer decided to raise her concerns in court where they could hopefully do something about it. She complained that one time in front of the kids, Fotis called her a bad mom and said she, quote, belongs in an asylum. She complained about the influence Michelle, the girlfriend, was having on the kids who were adjusting to their parents' separation. And there had to have been something Jennifer was providing the court backing this up because the judge who initially had given them shared custody started pulling back. And eventually, in March 2018, she gave Jennifer sole custody and suspended Fotis's visitation with the children. One of the reasons cited was that he was pressuring his children to lie in his favor. She said he was looking out for his own best interests and disregarding the interests of his children. When Fotis was eventually given visitation again in the spring of 2019, all visits had to be supervised. And even the phone calls with his kids had to be recorded. 
He wanted to be allowed to have his girlfriend, Michelle, be part of these visits, but the judge said no. The couple had court on May 17, 2019, but there were no significant changes to their custody or their setup. Fotis still had prearranged supervised visits, and his girlfriend was still excluded. So this is where we are in May 2019, a contentious divorce and a custody fight with 51-year-old Fotis only allowed supervised visits and 50-year-old Jennifer raising five kids under the age of 14 as a single mom. A single mom who had a nanny and had some family wealth, yeah, but five kids ages 6 to 13, that's still a lot for anyone. We have a few timelines to follow here as we walk through Jennifer's disappearance. And we're going to start with the timeline presented by Lauren, the family's nanny. On May 22nd, she was at Jennifer's house while they were waiting on Fotis and the appointed visitation supervisor to get to the house. Fotis was supposed to take the kids to Grace Farms in New Canaan for a picnic, dinner, and outing from 4.30 to 7.30. Grace Farms is a nature center slash art space slash community center. At 4 o'clock, Fotis showed up claiming he had the time wrong, even though the routine was for the visit to start at 4.30. Because it had to be supervised, they still had to wait for the supervisor to get there. When that happened, Fotis took the kids to Grace Farms. But Grace Farms is only open until 6 p.m. So Fotis called Jennifer and asked if he could have the picnic and the last hour and a half of his visit at her house. Jennifer said okay to this because she felt safe. The supervisor was going to be there. She was in no real danger. And the visit was going to take place in the backyard. He wasn't even coming in the house. Jennifer and Lauren got some food together and put it on the back patio and then closed and locked the door to keep Fotis from entering the house. Lauren and the person supervising the visit both said that Fotis never went into the house for any reason. The supervisor followed protocol and didn't leave the visit until after Fotis did. So there was no chance Jennifer let him in later when no one was around. And this is important to establish. The next evening, May 23rd, 2019, Jennifer made a comment about having Lauren spend the night because Jennifer had doctor's appointments in New York City the next day. But then she reconsidered and figured she had enough time to get the kids to school first and then go to her appointment. She told Lauren that she would leave the Suburban behind and take the Range Rover since it's just easier to park that in the city. When Lauren left that night, her plan was to go back the next day in time to get the kids from school in the middle of the day and bring them to New York to meet up with Jennifer. The next morning on Friday, May 24th, Jennifer Suburban was seen on a security camera in her neighborhood 
arriving home around 8.05 in the morning, which would have been the time she usually got home after dropping the kids off at school. Then at 10.25 in the morning, the Suburban was then seen on the same camera leaving the house. Jennifer's first appointment in New York City that morning was at 10.30, five minutes later. So if this was her leaving, she is leaving way, way too late. She's basically leaving at the time she should be arriving. Lauren, the nanny, arrived at the house at 11.30. She was going to get some things done and then go pick up the kids at school. She entered the garage using the keypad and was surprised to see the Range Rover was there and the Suburban was gone, since that is the opposite of what Jennifer said she was going to do. But people changed their minds, so she didn't think too much about it. Lauren then went into the house and straight to the kitchen, where she saw Jennifer's purse in the house, and not just in the house, it was on the floor between the mudroom and the kitchen, which seemed like an odd place for her to have left it, and apparently forgotten it on her way to New York City. So this seemed a little odd. Then Lauren saw there was an unopened granola bar on the counter with a mug of tea next to it. This was Jennifer's quick breakfast. So again, it seemed a little weird Jennifer didn't eat or drink her tea or bring them with her, but whatever. Maybe she wasn't hungry. Maybe she forgot. Lauren took the mug and washed it and noticed that the roll of paper towels was very low. So she went into the pantry to grab a new roll to replace it, and noticed there were only two rolls left. And this is also strange. Lauren herself, the day before, had restocked the pantry with a 12-pack of paper towels. She actually stood there for a minute, wondering what in the world Jennifer and the kids did that required 10 rolls of paper towels. So Lauren is seeing all of these little things that don't make sense, but they don't stand out as that alarming. They used a lot of paper towels. Oh, Jennifer forgot her granola bar. None of it was immediately alarming to her. So she went, she picked up the kids from school, she gave them lunch, and then texted Jennifer at 1243 and didn't get a response. Lauren finished getting the kids fed and ready to go to the city when she noticed the back mudroom door was unlocked. Jennifer was a stickler for locked doors, and this door was only left unlocked when the kids were playing outside and coming in and out, which of course they weren't because they had been at school all morning. Again, maybe Jennifer just forgot, maybe she didn't notice it was open, whatever, not that alarming. Lauren locked the door and texted Jennifer at 1.10 that their ETA for getting to New York was 2.30. She got the kids in the car and she drove to New York. She did not get a text back from Jennifer, not even in, okay, see you there. When Lauren got to New York with the kids and was at Jennifer's mother's apartment, 
She texted Jennifer again to let her know that they were there. She still didn't hear back. Even assuming Jennifer had appointments and plans all day, Lauren would have expected some type of response. So at 4 p.m., after not getting responses for a few hours, Lauren called Jennifer and the call went straight to voicemail. Lauren had worked for Jennifer for seven years. She had not one time ever tried to call Jennifer only for her phone to be off. That never happened before. And she had never had that much trouble getting in touch with Jennifer through text or phone calls. The kids had an orthodontist appointment at 440, so Lauren figured she would see Jennifer there. It's when Jennifer didn't show up at that appointment that Lauren knew something was wrong, and her first thought went to a dark place. She thought Fotis did something to Jennifer. That was her knee-jerk reaction. Lauren started calling around, and no one had heard from Jennifer. So right around 7 p.m., Lauren and a very close friend of Jennifer's called the New Canaan police to report Jennifer missing. No one called Fotis to see if he knew where Jennifer was because, one, Jennifer would never willingly be with him or telling him her location, and two, they suspected he may have something to do with why she was missing. When the missing person's call was made, they said that Jennifer was going through a messy divorce with a man who had threatened her in the past and owned a gun. They just put that out there to the police from the start that they were concerned Fotis had something to do with this. Lauren did, with police permission, accept a call from Fotis at 8.41 p.m. He had just been contacted by the New Canaan police and told Jennifer was missing. Fotis didn't ask Lauren any questions about Jennifer. No, when did you see her last? Or how was she acting? Nothing like that. He just asked about the kids and told Lauren that he fully expected her to drive the kids back to Connecticut the next day for his 11 a.m. visit. Lauren kind of half agreed with him, but then also said she was waiting to hear what the police thought she should do in regards to the visit, and he told her to keep him updated. Okay, so now we're going to leave Lauren's timeline and jump over to what the police are doing. The New Canaan police received that missing persons report just before 7 p.m. on Friday, May 24th. They went out to the house and no one answered the front door. Lauren had given them the garage code and they used that to access the house. So they stepped into the three-car garage and found one vehicle there, the Range Rover, in the middle bay. The Suburban that was usually parked next to it was gone, just like it had been when Lauren was at the house earlier. The third garage bay was generally used to store kids' stuff. The officers were looking around the garage more closely than Lauren did when she got to the house and just went inside, and they noticed a blood-like substance on the driver's side of the Range Rover. They also noticed spatter on the garage floor to the left of the car, so again on that driver's side. It was pretty obvious to them on sight 
that someone had cleaned up blood in this area. There were smear marks, but they hadn't gotten it all. Knowing they were looking at a crime scene, they called the state police and the state forensic crime scene techs. It's not that New Canaan has never had any murders. They had one in 1969. They then had a family annihilator case the following year. Then let me see, my search found another murder in the mid-1980s, then nothing until 2012. So not a lot of murder investigation experience, and they recognized this. So they called in help, and the house was searched forensically top to bottom. I'm just going to sum it up with the results because obviously they didn't get DNA back right away, but this episode is going to be so confusing and drawn out if I don't just give you the spoiler alerts. The blood in the garage. Spoiler, it's all Jennifer's. This involved blood on the Range Rover's hood, bumper, rear fender, as well as blood from the garage wall, floor, and door, as well as blood on trash cans and on fragments of paper towels. A partial bloody shoe print was found. The blood was Jennifer's. As far as I can tell with what has been released publicly, the shoe print doesn't have a match. It might have been matched. It's just not in the evidence that's been released yet, so this one we'll see. There was blood on the cabinet door beneath the sink in the kitchen, and that came back as Jennifer's blood. There was also blood from the kitchen sink, and now this was a mix of DNA. It had Jennifer's DNA in it, but it also had Fotis's DNA. Now you might say, okay, he wasn't in the house on the 22nd, but he did eat food Jennifer provided, so you have to assume she also cleaned it up, did the dishes, maybe some DNA transferred to the sink. So that one we can say has a reason to be there. But then a swab of the inside knob and the plate of the mudroom door came back as matching Fotis. And that's why it was important to establish that Fotis was not in the house during that visit, because we might be able to explain away the stuff on the kitchen sink, the inside doorknob of a house he should never have been in, that one's a little bit harder to say, oh, it probably just transferred. But I'm pretty sure that will be the defense to it, or they'll just claim he had been in the house a different time. The police called Verizon from the house that night to ask where Jennifer's cell phone had last pinged, because they couldn't find her cell phone, and it may have been in her vehicle, the Suburban, which was also missing. Verizon got back to them very quickly, and the phone was last in the vicinity of Waveney Park at 11.09 in the morning. It didn't then leave the park. The phone was disconnected from the network at that point. So an officer drove out to the park and located the Suburban nearby at 8.10 p.m. And this park is about three miles from Jennifer's home. The Suburban had been left in reverse with the running lights on and the rear cargo liner was missing. There was blood spatter on the passenger side of the truck on the outside. There was blood evidence on the inside and in the rear cargo area. Again, 
all Jennifer's blood. A search was done immediately of the 300-acre park. They used dogs, but no trace of Jennifer was found beyond the suburban. This trail of blood evidence is already painting a picture for investigators. They believe that Jennifer was very likely attacked in her garage, possibly while standing between the Range Rover and the Suburban, explaining why there was spatter on both. Whoever did this then cleaned up the house, using up all of those paper towels and washing in the kitchen sink. This theory would be further supported when police showed Lauren photographs of the garage and asked if anything was missing. Lauren had last tidied up the garage on May 21st, just three days before Jennifer went missing. So she knows where things were. She's looking at this picture and she notices on the shelving unit, there were two white camping pillows missing. And we are going to circle back to those. And also a cleaning supply bucket was gone. So police are thinking whoever did this used that bucket to help clean up. Now, the day after Jennifer went missing, Fotis had that scheduled visit. He texted Lauren at 5.39 in the morning, asking for an update about the visit. She texted back that there was no update. Then he texted a few more times that morning, trying to confirm that Lauren was bringing the kids back to Connecticut for this visit. In the end, she did not bring them. Meanwhile, in Connecticut... The police are waiting at the station for Fotis to come in to give a voluntary statement. He was expected around noon, but he didn't show up until a quarter to three, possibly because he was waiting to see if the kids would show up for the visit. Fotis walked into the station alone, but told the officers that his lawyer was outside on the phone. He asked for an update on Jennifer's disappearance, and the officers told him they were hoping he could help. They were taking him to a secure portion of the building, so they asked if he had any contraband or weapons on him, and he started emptying his pockets. And then he expressed that he couldn't find his phone. As he was patting down his own pockets, saying he didn't know where his phone was, his lawyer walked in and said there was not going to be any interview that day. He and Fotis were leaving. The officers expressed some surprise that Fotis was not going to help them find his missing wife, and they asked for some clarification about his stance that he was not going to cooperate. While standing there in the lobby talking, Fotis's lawyer reached over and handed Fotis his phone that, for some reason, the lawyer had been holding. The police saw it and asked Fotis if they could look at it, and he voluntarily turned it over and he provided the number to unlock it. They immediately put the phone on airplane mode. In the event, Fotis or someone else had remote access to the phone. They didn't want anyone deleting anything. Fotis's lawyer was not a fan of this, and he said they had no grounds to take Fotis's phone. The officer said they did. They believed it contained information related to Jennifer's disappearance. They were only securing it until they could get a search warrant to search the actual contents of the phone. According to the police, Fotis seemed nervous and agitated. He demanded his phone back at this point, 
and when they wouldn't give it to him, he and his attorney left. The next day, Sunday, May 26th, Fotis started texting the nanny Lauren again, and at noon, he showed up in New York City at Jennifer's mother's apartment. He was demanding to see the children. At some point, the NYPD were called to the scene, and Fotis claimed that his children had been abducted. New York called New Canaan and confirmed that Fotis only had supervised visitations on a set schedule, so the NYPD told him to leave, and he did. One of Jennifer's friends filed a domestic violence complaint over Fotis's actions when he showed up at the apartment. Monday, May 27th, was a holiday. It was Memorial Day. Fotis texted the nanny to check on the kids and asked her to send him updates every three hours. On Wednesday of that week, he showed up in New York City asking to see the kids for his scheduled visit. But after the incident on Sunday, Jennifer's mother had hired an armed guard for their apartment, and the guard turned him away. But in New Canaan, the warrant to search Fotis's phone and pull his records had come through. His phone records showed that Fotis's phone was at his house in Farmington on the morning Jennifer went missing. And then it moved between his house and a property he owned about five minutes away. But this wasn't until after one in the afternoon. Then in the evening, his phone started pinging in Hartford, Connecticut, along Albany Avenue. Curious as to what Fotis was doing in Hartford, police went to the city and pulled the CCTV footage. Hartford is one of those cities with lots of surveillance and traffic cameras. A Hartford Current article from November 2017 said there were over 700 cameras in the city. Not sure if more were installed in the next year and a half or not, but we're talking over 700 cameras. On the footage, they spotted a Ford Raptor pickup truck consistent to one registered to Fotis's company. The truck was first spotted at about 7.30 p.m. When it turned a corner about two minutes later, the camera got a good look into the bed of the truck, and there were several plastic trash bags in it. The truck was then not seen on camera for seven minutes. Then at about 7.40, the truck is back on camera. It stops, and a man consistent with Fotis's description got out of the driver's seat. He took one of the plastic trash bags and tossed it into a trash receptacle on the sidewalk. The bed of the truck had very few bags left, indicating that others had possibly been dumped in those seven minutes the truck wasn't on any of the cameras. The truck drove down the street a bit, then made a U-turn and came back. At 7.41, the man in the truck was seen taking the last garbage bag and throwing it into a trash can. At 7.50, the truck drove out of range of the cameras. Not all of the videos described in the search warrant affidavits and in the arrest warrants were time-stamped for us like these were. So here are a few other things listed in these that were seen. 
One was the man disposing of a small rug, consistent with one Jennifer had in her Suburban, and it appeared to have a stain on it. In another instance, the man pulled out a large, rigid item and leaned it up against a wall. This was consistent with the missing cargo liner from Jennifer's Suburban. Then in another snippet, the man is seen slipping a flat white box or envelope into a storm drain. In yet another, a light-colored piece of material was removed with a large stain on it, and it was consistent with the camping pillows Lauren said were missing from the garage. This pillow became important when a homeless man told police he found the bloody pillow. He left it where it was, but he did take a knife he found under the pillow. He traded it for drugs, but the dealer was someone he only knew by a street name. And as far as we know, police have yet to track down the drug dealer or the knife or determine if it's even connected to this case. The Ford Raptor was next seen at 8.12 p.m. pulling into Fotis' driveway. A man who was wearing the same clothes as the guy in the Hartford CCTV footage got out of the truck, got the mail, and then went back into the truck and drove up Fotis' driveway until he was out of the frame. While maybe someone could argue the CCTV footage didn't prove it was Fotis or his truck in Hartford, the video of someone in a Raptor getting Fotis' mail and going up to his house, that was definitely him. And if that matches the man in the CCTV footage, it's pretty easy to say they're the same person. Additionally, Fotis' phone records put at least his phone in the area where this man was dumping things. And of course, once you add in the phone records showing Fotis, or at least his phone, was in the Hartford area, it's hard to argue this wasn't Fotis. So with all this video evidence, detectives went to Hartford on Friday, May 31st, to search the trash cans and the dumpsters in the area. The media took note of this. The new Canaan police were in Hartford, and word started getting out. The police did confirm the searches in the area were connected to a new Canaan case, and that's not hard to make the leap to know they're talking about the Jennifer Dulos disappearance. Unfortunately, some of the trash receptacles had been emptied before police got there, but not all of them. They found a few of the bags and over 20 items related to Jennifer's case were found. And it's good to note that Hartford is 75 miles from New Canaan. So it's not like Jennifer would have ever thrown things away in Hartford herself. A shirt and bra believed to belong to Jennifer were found cut up with what looked like blood on them. This shirt was a favorite of hers, so anyone who knew her would recognize it as hers. There were zip ties with a blood-like substance on them, and there were a bunch of household cleaning items, like a sponge and a mop handle, and of course, they also had blood on them, and of course, they matched Jennifer's DNA. Fotis's DNA was found on a black garden glove, his fingerprint was found on a duct-taped bag. And they also found the storm drain that that flat white object was slipped into, 
and they were able to fish it out. It was a FedEx envelope, and inside were Connecticut license plates, except they had been altered with paint and tape. So what was being displayed was a false tag number. A 1 was made into a T, a B into a D, and a J into a U. When they ran the actual plate numbers, they came back to a vehicle previously registered to FOTUS. But he had canceled the plates at some point, so they weren't currently valid plates. But being disguised the way they were, it makes it look like the person who used them didn't want the actual plates to be tracked back to him if they came up on, let's say, CCTV footage or from a witness. But there was something else on the CCTV footage that I haven't told you yet. Someone was with Fotis. In one snippet of the video, a woman was seen leaning out of the passenger side. Some sources say she was leaning out to smoke, and others say she looked like she was either dropping something or reaching to pick something up. And the woman looked like Michelle Traconis, Fotis's girlfriend. Police were already thinking that more than one person was involved in this, if not in the murder, at least the cleanup. And this video appeared to confirm that. The day of the search of the dumpsters, May 31st, Fotis and Michelle were at a barbecue with friends in Avon, Connecticut, which is in this greater Hartford area. When they arrived, the host suggested they might want to leave since it wasn't appropriate for them to be there together while Jennifer was missing. But they decided not to leave. Another friend asked Fotis, where's Jennifer? And Fotis responded something about how Jennifer had racked up $15,000 in medical bills recently. Then a guest's phone went off with a breaking news alert. He read it to Fotis because it said that New Canaan police were finding evidence related to a case in Hartford. Fotis pulled the news story up on his phone and looked at Michelle before walking away and making phone calls. That night, Fotis and Michelle went back to their Farmington house where police met them. They had a warrant for Fotis's DNA and a search warrant for the property. After they took Fotis's DNA at the barracks, he was free to go. He and Michelle got a hotel room in Avon while their home was being searched. Late the next night, Saturday, June 1st, Fotis and Michelle were arrested at the hotel, not for murder, but for tampering with evidence and hindering a prosecution for disposing of the trash bags of bloody clothes and items. They both made bail and were released. The search of Fotis and Michelle's house found some interesting documents. Police call them the alibi scripts. They're a handwritten account of everything Fotis and Michelle did the day Jennifer went missing and the day after. They were found in the part of the house that was used for Fotis's business. The original was found in a trash can, but copies were in a briefcase. The alibis included witnesses for specific times, a list of activities they did, and even incoming and outgoing phone calls. It was pretty much an hour-by-hour accounting of their day. But the police had actually already heard the alibi script by the time they found it. 
because it matched the statement Michelle made after her arrest. She was sticking to the script, even though police were finding inconsistencies in it. For instance, the alibi script curiously left out the trip to Hartford, which was confirmed by phone records and CCTV cameras. After finding the scripts, police sat down for a second interview with Michelle. They confronted her about how her alibi left out this trip to Hartford. They told her straight up that it looked really bad to leave out the most incriminating part of her day that the police can confirm happened. If this was an innocent event, if they just happened to decide that's how they were disposing of the garbage, if this trip was an innocent event, why leave it out? Michelle said she knew it looked bad, but that Fotis never told her to leave anything out. She had just been giving the highlights of her day. She did say there were things in her alibi that she didn't actually remember, but that Fotis told her had happened. In this interview, she did admit the trip to Hartford. That was her, and that was Fotis. She said at 6.30 or 7 that night, Fotis suggested they go to Starbucks, which is in West Hartford. She was looking at her phone while he drove, and then she found herself in a creepy part of Hartford where Fotis stopped multiple times to throw away trash in various dumpsters. Then on the way back home from Hartford, they stopped at the Starbucks. She said she did not know what was in the bags. The interview and the two more Michelle eventually sat for were contradictory to each other. Sometimes they would contradict things she said in the same interview. Police said that when she was confronted with something they could prove was a lie with their evidence, her story would then shift to fit the evidence. But the part of her story that they wanted to nail down wasn't Hartford, it wasn't what she did in the afternoon, it was the morning, the morning of May 24th. Fotis's phone records showed that his phone was at the house all morning, and Michelle was one of Fotis's alibi witnesses to say that he was home as well. To understand why the morning was the most important time to have an alibi for Fotis, let's talk about the timeline developing. After Jennifer went missing, people all over New Canaan volunteered their home security footage to the police to see if there was any evidence on it, if her abductor could be spotted. That's how they know Jennifer pulled into her driveway at 8.05 and then her Suburban left again at 10.25. So this is the window police believe Jennifer was attacked and the scene cleaned up. When the Suburban left at 10.25, police believe Jennifer was dead or at the very least mortally injured in the back of the vehicle. Michelle's first story at her first interview was that she and Fotis both woke up at 6.40. They showered together and then had sex before she got her daughter ready and off to school. She saw Fotis, for sure, at the house at 8.15. Fotis ran his business out of a home office and had a meeting with lawyer Kent Mawinney that morning. Kent, through this meeting, could supply the rest of Fotis's alibi. 
And trust me, we will come back to Kent later. Michelle was then gone from 9 to 11 a.m., and she could prove it because she first stopped to see one friend, then she went to the grocery store where she took a selfie, and then she went to meet another friend. She got home in time to have lunch with Fotis, though she changed the time of the lunch a few times. If Fotis was at his house at 8.15 and then Michelle left at 9 having not seen Fotis leave, we can say he was probably at his house at 9 as well. That would make it impossible for him to make it to New Canaan, murder Jennifer, clean up, and get back home. Fotis's phone was still at the house that whole morning, but it still undermined what Michelle said because she claimed they woke up together. Fotis's phone recorded that his alarm went off at 4.20 and was turned off at 4.21, indicating that he may have gotten up much earlier than Michelle. Eventually, Michelle admitted she hadn't seen Fotis at all that morning. She woke up and he was already out of bed. When she came home from taking her daughter to school, she didn't see him. She did see Kent, therefore whatever this meeting was, but she didn't see Fotis. On the table where Kent was sitting was Fotis's phone. At one point, the phone rang, and Kent told Michelle to answer it. It was one of Fotis's friends from Greece calling, and the phone records show that it was a very short call of only 17 seconds. Police believe that this call was prearranged in order to make it look like Fotis had more of an alibi than he did. He answered his phone when his friend called. But here's Michelle saying that she was the one who answered it. But we're going to stop following Michelle's story at this point because no matter what she says, police believe that they have CCTV footage from that morning that will tell them the real story of what happened. What Michelle did or did not know about that morning is a matter for the courts. So here's what happened according to CCTV footage. Fotis owned a property about a five-minute drive from his home. He actually owned three properties along Mountain Spring Road. The property we're going to be talking about has a mansion on it. At 5.35 in the morning, a red Toyota Tacoma pickup truck was seen leaving the Mountain Spring property. This vehicle belonged to one of Fotis's employees, Powell Gemeni. A little after 6.30, an identical red Tacoma was seen traveling south on the Merritt Parkway, passing the Fairfield rest stop. At 7.03, it passed the New Canaan rest stop, and there's no evidence it was on the Merritt Parkway any further than this. At 7.31 a.m., which is about 30 minutes later, a person dressed in dark clothing was seen riding a bicycle through New Canaan in the vague direction of Jennifer's house. At 7.40, a school bus in New Canaan passed a turnout near the park where Jennifer Suburban would later be found, and it caught an image of a red Tacoma parked there. The truck bed of the Tacoma appears to be empty, and this is about 100 feet from where Jennifer Suburban would later be found. A school bus passed again at 7.57, and the Tacoma was still there. At 8.05, Jennifer arrived home in her Suburban after dropping the kids off. 
Then we see no changes in anything until 1025 when the suburban leaves the house. Again, this is the window the police believe the crime happened. Then at 11.09 a.m., Jennifer's cell phone went off the network while still in that Waveney Park area. This shows Jennifer, or at least her phone, was at the park for 40 minutes before disconnecting from the network. Three minutes later, the Tacoma was seen getting on the highway in New Canaan. So what in the world happened in those 40 minutes? It throws a little wrench into this theory that she was ambushed and moved from the property because why would a killer take Jennifer's phone to the area around the park and let it sit there turned on for 40 minutes? And then they would have come back and had to turn it off before leaving. Why would they waste this time? When you commit a crime like this, you want to finish it and get out of there as soon as possible, particularly because this was broad daylight. And being broad daylight, it seems unlikely someone would have parked the Suburban with her phone in it, carried her body into the park to dump it, and then returned to the Suburban, powered down her phone, and left. Someone surely would have seen them. Here's all I can figure, because let me tell you, I've been spending at least two days thinking about these 40 minutes. Let's say Jennifer left her phone in the Suburban when she got out of the car after dropping the kids off. She was then immediately attacked. When the killer put her body in the vehicle, he didn't notice her phone was there. At some point while he was driving away, he noticed the phone. For some reason, maybe he was at the park when he noticed it. Maybe he did have his vehicle stashed there. Maybe it was the Tacoma. He decided to leave the phone there while he left to dispose of Jennifer's body. Then he went back to the park, possibly back to his Tacoma, powered the phone down before he then drove off, likely with the phone, but with it off. This would mean that Jennifer was, at least initially, left somewhere that is no more than a 40-minute round trip from Waveney Park. The other explanation is that Jennifer was alive and well, and she was the driver of the Suburban when it left the house at 1025. She drove herself to the park and waited there for 40 minutes before she powered down her phone and disappeared. We'll circle back to this when we discuss the defense's proposed alternative theory of what really happened. Okay, so at 11.12, the Tacoma was back on the Merritt Parkway, heading north. When it passed the New Canaan rest stop, the rim of a bicycle is visible in the truck bed. And then the truck continues on the Merritt Parkway until it gets to Route 8. It is spotted a couple times on Route 8, which would take you north towards Farmington. At 12.22, the Tacoma pulled into the Mountain Spring Road property that Fotis' company owns. And according to my incredible skills with Google Maps, I have determined that this perfectly fits in line with the camera footage from the New Canaan rest stop as far as the timeline goes. It's not like the truck traveled at an impossible speed or it took far too long. 
from when the truck was seen on the Merritt Parkway in New Canaan to when it arrived in Farmington was within five minutes of Google's estimated travel time. So we have the Tacoma on a property that Fotis owns. Then a bit after 1.30, a white Jeep and a black Suburban, not obviously Jennifer's, another Suburban, pulled onto the same property. Michelle told police that she was in the Jeep and Fotis was the one driving the Suburban. So if this was Fotis in the Tacoma, how did he sneak back to his house to get into another vehicle? It turns out it's just about a 40-minute walk, faster if he jogged, so he definitely had time to have done this on foot. He had about 50 minutes. From what I've seen, there's no confirmation, though, that the Suburban was driven by Fotis, aside from Michelle's accounting. Michelle told police that they were at the property to clean the house because they had clients coming. Fotis's cell phone pinged near the property at 1.37. This is the first time all day, from what I can see, that his cell phone didn't show that it was at his home. So the story is they're up at this mansion property cleaning. At one point while cleaning, Michelle said Fotis came inside and told her he needed paper towels to clean up some coffee he had spilled in the truck. When he brought them back in, they had brownish stains on them, like coffee, but they didn't smell like coffee, and anyone who's spilled coffee anywhere knows it has a very strong scent. Anyway, she took the paper towels from him and threw them away. I think the implication on the part of the police here is that these were actually blood stains that are starting to dry up a bit, and that's why they were more brown but Michelle didn't say she thought they were blood. So in one of these interviews with Michelle, the police pointed out what they thought was pretty obvious. Fotis had roped her into cleaning up his wife's murder. Michelle replied that she hated him for involving her. They told her that he got her in a lot of trouble with this, and she said she just cleaned the house. She didn't clean Jennifer. So Michelle is definitely distancing herself from the actual murder here, teasing at some type of involvement, but not giving the police a full accounting of her role or what she knew at the time, or even saying, for sure, Fotis killed his wife. Between the neighborhood security cameras up where Fotis and Michelle lived, and their phone records. The police tried to put together a timeline of the rest of the day, but they don't always match. A car would leave one property to go to another and then come back, but the cell phones wouldn't have moved. There's a bit of this back and forth between the properties that afternoon. This could point to one or more people driving the vehicles, But it also could mean that Fotis and Michelle just didn't keep their cell phones glued to them. Or it points to the cell phone information not necessarily being exact. When the two properties are only two miles apart, I mean, Serial Season 1 taught us that we need to kind of side-eye these cell phone pings a little. 
But there is a lot of back and forth between the properties. I'm not going to walk through that timeline or you guys would be put to sleep. And whether all this back and forth is that relevant or if it reveals anything about this case, we're going to have to wait to find out because the police certainly don't spell it out in any of these search warrants or in the arrest affidavit. So where the timeline gets interesting again is around 4.30. Fotis's employee and the owner of the Tacoma, Powell, went to Fotis's house at the end of the workday to get his truck. Fotis had texted him around a quarter after two to ask when he'd be back at the office, and Powell said 4.30. So Fotis should have known to expect him. But when he got there, his truck and Fotis weren't there. He went inside the office and his key wasn't there. Powell called and texted Fotis to try to figure out where his truck was. Fotis didn't respond to any of this. So Powell first went to another property to pick up a ramp that he was going to use to load his dirt bike into his truck. And then he went to the Mountain Spring Road property just to see if Fotis was there. He saw both Fotis and Michelle standing outside and they seemed surprised to see him there. And it was around 5 p.m. at this point. There are some more super boring details about moving cars around properties. The important part here is that when all three of them left the Mountain Spring property, the Tacoma was left there, and Powell saw the key in the passenger side door. But when he and Fotis got back there after doing a bunch of driving around, the key was gone. Fotis told him, just take the Raptor for the night and not worry about it. But Powell insisted on taking the Tacoma because he had to transport a dirt bike back to his house. So Fotis called Michelle and told her to bring the key back. So Powell got his Tacoma back that night and went home. This Toyota Tacoma, that police now believe was a key part of the crime, needed, obviously, to be searched. It was registered in Powell's wife's name, so the police showed up at his house to serve the search warrant. Powell must have already decided that he wasn't going down with any ship. He said he didn't initially suspect Fotis had anything to do with Jennifer's disappearance, but as time went by, things were looking at least a little suspect to him. Pretty much immediately after the police got to his house, Powell told them that the seats in the truck had been changed out since Jennifer's disappearance, and the truck had been cleaned and detailed. On May 29th, without his prior knowledge or permission, Fotis and Michelle brought the Tacoma in and paid $250 to have it completely cleaned out. Furthermore, Powell wanted police to know he did not have the Tacoma on the day Jennifer went missing. The night before, May 23rd, Fotis loaned Powell the Ford Raptor. And when police got the GPS records from the Raptor's OnStar, they confirmed the truck was at Powell's house that morning. It also explained some tips that came in claiming that Fotis's Raptor was in New Canaan the day Jennifer went missing. Powell was there on a job assignment. 
It wasn't uncommon for Powell to leave his Tacoma at the company office, which, remember, is also Fotis's house. He would then use a company truck to get to and from job sites around the state. His routine was to leave his truck key on the kitchen counter or in the office. So on the morning of May 24th, Fotis, Michelle, and anyone else at their house had full use of the Tacoma because they had both the truck and the key. So about this cleaning of the truck and replacing the seats, five days after Jennifer went missing, Powell left his truck at the office and took a company vehicle to a job site like normal. But when he got back to the office later, his Tacoma wasn't there. He called Fotis, who told him they were having it cleaned. Getting your employee's truck cleaned and detailed for fun is either very weird or it's like a boss of the year move. I'm not really sure which. I think in this case, it was kind of weird. When Powell finally got his truck back, Fotis told him he should sell his truck and even offered to sell Powell the company Jeep. Powell wasn't interested, so Fotis said he should at least replace the seats. The next day, as media pressure on Fotis is growing and the press is camping outside his house, Fotis told Powell to get new seats immediately and to pay cash for them. So Powell went to the junkyard to see what they had, but they didn't have anything he could use. When he got back to work without new seats, Fotis was angry about this. Again, this is weird, so Powell pushes back a little, asking why Fotis wanted them switched out so badly. Fotis said not to worry about it. Powell then asked why he had had the truck cleaned. Now, Fotis claimed, according to Powell, that on Mother's Day, which was a couple weeks before, he had gone to Jennifer's house. While he was there, he gave her a hug and held her cat. He was worried that some hair or fur may have transferred to him, and he transferred it to the seat of the truck. And now, in light of Jennifer being missing, that would look very bad for him even though he has this innocent explanation. It seems odd that on Mother's Day, Jennifer was hugging him, and on May 22nd, she was locking the door so he couldn't go in her house. But this is the story. Then Fotis told Powell to get rid of the seats and make sure no one found them. Powell, though, like I said, he's not taking the fall for anything. He wasn't going to go down as an accomplice. He took the seats from a wrecked Porsche that Fotis owned, but he didn't get rid of the old ones. He pulled them out and figured the police might want to see them one day. He was not going to interfere with that. So when they came to his house on June 6th, he still had them and turned them over. His attorney said this is the smartest move Powell could have made, and he's absolutely correct. He'd be looking at his own tampering with evidence charge if he had been foolish enough to listen to Fotis and get rid of those seats. The truck and the seats were examined forensically, and Jennifer's blood was found on the passenger seat. There is no benign explanation for this that I can think of, because there's no reason for Jennifer to have been in that truck. 
Powell continued to cooperate. They showed him the CCTV footage of the Tacoma going to New Canaan and then coming back. He identified the truck as his. He pointed to the snowplow mount on the front. This is Connecticut, so this isn't the only Tacoma with a mount for a snowplow on it. But Powell didn't buy his mount. He made it himself. So he was looking at it on this truck and was confident it was the one he made. Powell also let the police look at his cell phone, and they noticed that some items had been deleted from his phone. Powell denied being the one who deleted anything, but said Fotis had asked to look at his phone on May 28th. The police still had Fotis's phone, and Fotis was building his alibi script on the advice of a lawyer saying you better write down everything. So he's building this quote-unquote script, and he wanted to see Powell's phone to see if they had any communication on May 24th, which would then fit into his timeline somewhere. Powell didn't think anything of it and gave the phone to Fotis. Well, in looking at what was deleted, it was all stuff from May 28th and earlier, making it look like it was deleted on that day. There was one last thing Powell told police that helped further put things together. And this has to do with the bicycle. So police believe that someone parked the Tacoma, took a bicycle, rode it to Jennifer's house, ambushed her, put her in the Suburban, and that's how they left the scene. In one of the dumpsters in Hartford, they found a logo from a vintage French-made bicycle. The police were wondering if this logo was connected to the man on the bicycle in New Canaan. Well, Powell confirmed that Fotis owned a bicycle, like the one in the footage, and it was normally stored on hooks in the garage. The hooks where the bike should have been were empty. This wasn't a common bicycle, certainly not one you would see in western Connecticut. It was a vintage Mercier brand bicycle, and how many people own one of those? In September 2019, Fotis and Michelle were arrested on additional tampering with evidence charges. Then on January 6, 2020, a judge signed an arrest warrant for 52-year-old Fotis Dulos for murder, felony murder, and first-degree kidnapping. His bond was set at $6 million. He also signed a warrant for 45-year-old Michelle Traconis for conspiracy to commit murder and her bond was set at $2 million. It was later lowered to $1.5 million. Also arrested was Kent Mawinney. He was charged with conspiracy to commit murder, and his bond was also set at $2 million. Fotis and Michelle both posted bond and are out on ankle monitors and some form of house arrest. Headlines said that Michelle had been rushed to the emergency room after posting bail, the police said it was a medical evaluation that was a condition of her release, but she had been in the medical wing during the two days she was in lockup, so there may have been something going on. She was released from the hospital that same day. Kent Mawinney has, as of me writing this, 
not been able to raise the 10% needed to get out of lockup. And he also hasn't been able to talk a judge into lowering his bond. In the arrest warrants, it says that police consulted with a medical examiner. He determined that due to the amount of blood found, Jennifer would not have been able to survive her injuries without immediate medical attention. That's attention we know she didn't get. This is how they determined that this was a murder, even without a body. So no body cases are actually not that hard to win, surprisingly enough. Ted DiBiase is an attorney who runs the NobodyCases.com website, which is a fascinating database of cases that went to trial with no body. In his study of these cases, he found that 86% of them end in a conviction. That's in comparison to the 70% conviction rate for all murder cases. He said the problem isn't in winning the cases. It is in bringing charges at all. Without a body, there is a higher bar you need to reach to hit that minimum threshold of getting this to court. So the reason the conviction rate is higher for nobody cases is that only the really strong cases will ever go to trial in the first place. I found it very surprising that they were more likely to end in a conviction, but it really makes sense when you don't have a body to even prove the person is dead, let alone murdered, you have to have a really, really solid case to get to court. So I kind of blew right past this 52-year-old Kent Mawinney guy, so let's take a second to talk about how he fits into this. He got mentioned before as the guy who was at the house for a meeting with Fotis on the morning Jennifer went missing. He was a friend of Fotis's. He was also Fotis's civil lawyer. He was representing Fotis in a legal battle with his mother-in-law. Jennifer's mother is claiming that the $2.5 million that had been given to Fotis towards his business over the years was all a loan. Fotis says the money was always a gift. That is what they're fighting out in court. And Kent was Fotis's representation. So now Kent was going through his own nasty divorce at the time. In early 2019, he was charged with spousal rape. In mid-May, Fotis reached out to Kent's wife to try to negotiate a reconciliation. As you can imagine, after a rape charge, Kent was banned from speaking with her directly. It still seemed odd to her, though, that Fotis was reaching out since she barely knew him. And Kent had an attorney representing him for the divorce, as did his estranged wife. But anyway, Fotis is jumping in, and he tried unsuccessfully to get Kent's estranged wife to go to his house in Farmington to talk. She refused. She would only meet in public in any real sit-down meeting about negotiating anything would require their lawyers to be there. If Fotis was intervening for Kent in his marriage, we can assume they were fairly close friends. Though Kent's estranged wife thinks there was some sort of conspiracy between them to get rid of their spouses. When interviewed by police, Kent gave inconsistent statements. 
first he said the meeting with Fotis was not planned. He just showed up at 7.40 in the morning. The next interview, he said it was actually a scheduled meeting. He did say, though, that Fotis was not there, which makes him the world's worst alibi witness. Fotis offered two alibi witnesses that we know of, Michelle and Kent, and both told police he wasn't there. Kent additionally denied he got any phone calls from Fotis on the day before and the day of the disappearance, but phone records show that he did get a phone call on both days. The most interesting one is at 7.47 on May 24th. This is pretty much right when Fotis is throwing stuff in the trash. It's when he was slipping the license plates into a storm drain. While he was in Hartford, he called Kent. Kent says he doesn't remember this call because on the 25th, which was the next day, Kent says he took a fall and he sustained a concussion and he also broke his phone screen, which required him to get a new phone. He mostly took the deny everything tactic in his interviews. But the real question of his involvement in the murder or the cover-up is more than just this alibi witness stuff. But it is a bit of a ride, so you're going to have to bear with me. We're going to have to back up a bit. Kent was a founding member of the Windsor Rod and Gun Club, and he helped secure the club's property in East Granby, Connecticut. In 2019, Kent was no longer a member. In the spring of 2019, Kent called a current member of the club and asked him about rejoining. The conversation got around to the property, and the member told Kent where the key to one of the gates was hidden. After this conversation, Kent did not apply to rejoin the club. Then, on May 18th, Jay Lawler and a friend were out at the club's property hunting. They came upon this odd area of disturbed dirt. They moved some branches and leaves out of the way to reveal a hole that was covered with barbecue grates. This hole, which was more like a pit, was two feet wide, six feet long, and three and a half feet deep. If it sounds like a grave, well, that's exactly what Jay and his friend thought. In the pit, though, there was no body. There was a tarp and two bags of lime. So yeah, it looked like a grave, but there was no one actually in it. Jay and his friend dismantled the covering on the pit and cleared it out so that people would see it and not accidentally fall in. This was nearly a week before Jennifer went missing. On May 22nd, Jay's friend went back to the site and said rain had half-filled in the hole and the bags of lime had been removed. Then in June, Jay was out there, and he noticed the pit had been completely filled back in. So he mentioned that to a friend of his, who was a cop in another state, and the friend told him to go to the police, which is what he did. The East Granby police went out there on June 21st, and they dug up the now-filled-in pit. They went down about a foot and a half and didn't find anything. So Jay just pushed aside this weird incident until August 2nd, 2019. He was at the club helping 
with some project, and someone brought up Kent and said he had gotten himself wrapped up in the Dulos disappearance. So now Jay is putting together Kent's knowledge of the property with the pity found, and he went back to the police. This time he specifically said he thought this empty grave may have had something to do with Jennifer's disappearance. So the police brought out cadaver dogs, and the pit was fully excavated, but nothing was found. If it was related to Jennifer's disappearance and had possibly been dug in anticipation to use it, I'm sure the person who dug it decided against it when they found it dismantled by Jay and his friend. It's not such a secret location anymore. I do want to interject here that this is actually the same time frame that Fotis was trying to get Kent's estranged wife over to his house to talk. So if Kent's wife is onto something, that may have been her grave. But the idea that Fotis and Kent had some strangers on a train packed doesn't make a ton of sense. If two friends having contentious divorces both have wives go missing, it would make them both look doubly suspicious. The reason strangers on a train, that premise, had any chance of working is the strangers part of that. Anyway, a check of Kent's cell records shows he was near the club property in late March, and then again on May 31st, at something like 11 at night. May 31st stands out a bit because someone saw the pit open and half filled with water before this, and then by early June, it had been filled in. When Kent was arrested, police had a little bit of trouble finding him. He was scheduled to be in court for his client's cases, but he wasn't where the court clerk said he would be. Police were told he had left right before they got there. They pinged a cell phone to find that he was traveling through Tolland, Connecticut, heading towards Massachusetts. So afraid he was fleeing, they pulled him over and arrested him. And that is where this case is right now, as of the moment I'm speaking. I'm actually not even sure about that. I've been recording for a very long time, and it's quite possible a new article is out on this case with new information in the last couple of hours. New evidence is coming out every week, if not every day, and I worry this episode will be out of date before I even hit publish. But I really can't wrap this up without at least talking about possible motives and talking about possible alternative theories. So motive. If Fotis, who is accused of the murder, did it, what's his motive? And I think in this situation, you can just take your pick. It's control, custody, anger, money. Financial records show that Fotis had millions of dollars in business debt. The money in his business accounts was primarily money he had borrowed, not income from his business. In the spring of 2019, he was not able to cover the interest due on all of the loans he had, and he had maxed out his lines of credit. So Jennifer being out of the picture meant no child support, no alimony, or legal bills related to the divorce. More than that, the five children have trust funds that were set up by Jennifer's parents. Fotis would be able to apply 
to the trustee to get reimbursements for educational expenses, room and board, and a few other things. But honestly, I don't think money is a very solid motive. Jennifer's death wouldn't change his situation that much because his debts are so high. If anything, her disappearance made the state look more closely at his financials. It is now public record that his business is millions of dollars underwater. But I could be convinced that the financial stress did contribute to overall feelings that he was losing control of his life. But Fotis has maintained his innocence. That is important to note. His lawyer has proposed what he calls the Gone Girl Theory. I think the book and the movie are old enough that I can go ahead and spoil them, but if you don't want me to, plug your ears for the next two minutes. So the story here is that a perfect-from-the-outside woman goes missing. It turns out at the end, she had actually spent months planning to make it look like she was murdered by her husband to get back at him. The evidence for this is a book Jennifer wrote. Fotis's attorney told Dateline that the plot isn't Gone Girl exactly, but it's close. According to her friend who read the book, though, this book is one that Jennifer wrote 17 years ago, and it isn't like Gone Girl at all. So who knows here? The Gone Girl theory would also explain the 40 minutes at the park. Jennifer went there, and she sat, waiting, possibly on her ride, that would help her flee. In Gone Girl, the woman banked her own blood for months to plant at the scene, so Jennifer's blood in the garage wouldn't rule out the Gone Girl theory either. The biggest issue with this theory is that Gone Girl is a fictional story, and it's a fictional story for a reason. It would be near impossible to pull this off. It is fantasy. There are some little details, like thinking to get rid of all those paper towels. Why would Jennifer think to do that even if she's staging a Gone Girl scenario? And then there is the very big detail of somehow convincing Fotis and Michelle to dispose of trash bags full of items with her blood and DNA on them. That didn't happen. I'm not saying Fotis killed her. I'm not saying Michelle killed her. I'm not saying Kent killed her. But it's obvious at least one of them either did or they know who did and they helped clean it up. It will be very interesting to hear their defenses at trial. All three of the accused have too much to lose to go down for someone else's actions if they were truly not as involved in anything as it appears. Fotis and Michelle, I know, both have minor children to think of. If I was a party to this, where maybe I was an accessory after the fact, or maybe I did something a little shady, but didn't know the full story, didn't know that someone was going to be murdered, I would offer to testify for a lesser charge. I would sing like a canary. I would not face a conspiracy to commit murder charge or a murder charge if I was really an accessory after the fact. I guess they could also try the ignorance defense, though. They didn't know what the killer had done or didn't know before it happened or didn't even know their role in the cover-up. Powell Gemini almost got roped into being an accessory after the fact by destroying potential evidence when he had 
nothing to do with it, and no knowledge of the crime. So this is actually possible. There is a gag order in the case right now, which Fotis' attorney is fighting. He wants to be allowed to continue to present Fotis's side to the public. He has filed motions to suppress evidence like the cell phone. While Fotis turned it over willingly, he did ask for it back, thereby revoking his consent. If the judge agrees the police did not have cause to secure the phone while they waited on a search warrant, all the cell phone evidence from the physical phone could be kicked out, and that would mean any evidence that also came from the search of the phone. But the records showing Fotis going to Hartford, which led to the CCTV footage, which led to finding the trash bags of evidence, those would all still be in. The police did not need the physical phone to pull that location information. They were able to get it from the cell phone carrier. Therefore, that would not come under this revoking of consent. Though I'm sure there are many more motions that have been filed or will come that I'm not aware of. Fotis' attorney is also trying to get the charges thrown out since there was no grand jury indictment. He said it is Fotis's right. However, Connecticut got rid of that requirement in the 1980s, which is something I learned when we covered Martha Moxley on Insight. Now they just need a probable cause hearing, and this episode is already too long to get into all of that. His attorney said Fotis will be testifying at trial. The jury will hear from him in explanation for all of this, and it'll clear everything up for us. He's also confident that Michelle Traconis will tell the truth at trial. What he means by the truth is that she'll go back to her original story of seeing Fotis at the house on May 24th, which effectively alibis him and makes it impossible for him to have been the one who killed Jennifer. In spite of numerous searches for her body, Jennifer Dulos remains missing. The Dulos children currently live with their grandmother in New York City, and Fotis has no visitation rights. He has been fighting to get custody and contact reestablished with his kids, but he has been unsuccessful, and I certainly don't think his arrest for the murder is going to play in his favor there. If Fotis is guilty, I do hope he's convicted. I hope there's justice for Jennifer Dulos, but you also don't want to see kids lose both of their parents. Obviously, I'll be watching this case, and I will keep you updated when the trial happens. In the meantime, if you have any information related to the disappearance of Jennifer Dulos, call the New Canaan Police at 203-594-3500. That's 203-594-3500. Thank you for listening to Crimelines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crimelines Podcast. Twitter at Crimelines Pod and Instagram at Crimelines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at Charlie in KC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crimelines is produced by Basement Fort Productions LLC. Visit our website basementfort.com for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show 
hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. 